Obsessed Snacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sass Snack Files. This week, I'm discussing Season 6, Episode 1, Echoes. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sass Snack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. With all of that out of the way, let's get into 601 Echoes. This is kind of freaky because this is the first episode that I have recorded about an episode of Outlander that has aired in relatively recent times. Today, we're talking about 601 Echoes, written by Matt Roberts. It is kind of a cool episode. It's an extended episode. They wanted to give us something to play with, something to sink our teeth into, given that it was almost two years since we'd had a new episode of Outlander. First of all, the fact that we made it through two years of Droughtlander is just deserves a round of applause for everybody out there that stuck it out. For everybody that found Outlander during that two years, welcome to the show. It's really crazy that 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 period of time passed. And so that kind of goes a long way toward explaining why we got this ginormous recap that we did at the beginning of this episode. And I love that they chose to have the voiceover from 505 Perpetual Adoration as kind of the idea behind this three minutes of recapping everything that an audience member could possibly need reminded of for the plot events of season six. We have those final words. If time is anything akin to God, then memory must be the devil. It fades to black and then opens up on gorgeous gorgeous Glencoe, Scotland, which honestly, I've been a couple of times and I think it is one of my favorite places on planet Earth. There is something so magical about Glencoe and I really hope that every single one of you gets to visit it at some point in your life because it really is amazing. So I'm already in love with the fact that they chose this filming location for the Ardsmere prison stuff. Now, to think that we almost didn't get this because... Initially, all of these scenes, these outdoor scenes for the Ardsmere stuff were inside on stage when they started filming in January. And then when they put the episode together, they were like, this is way too closed off. Like, we really need some open air up in here. And so at the end of filming in June, they went back to Glencoe. They had like a a good weather day and Matt did some rewrites on the scripts And they went back to Glencoe and they reshot all of these scenes with the rewrites to accommodate outdoors. I am so glad they did because as a viewer, there's something so great about seeing Scotland on the screen. And I know that a lot of people miss it. And the showrunners and the producers, they know that we miss it. And so I love that they try to tuck it in and we get that at a couple of points in this season. The Ardsmere stuff really is a beautiful piece of work. And one thing that I love so much about it is that whole period of Voyager kind of got glossed over in season three. 
as book readers, we were all like, well, how are they going to do this? Because Tom Christie is an important character. And like how Jamie developed his bond with his Ardsmuirmen is super important. And so to see them develop this through an episode called Echoes, it's a 20 minute cold open or preview or teaser, whatever you want to call it out there in the television universe. It's 20 minutes, y'all. And it's one ginormous flashback. And I was fortunate enough to get a ticket to the advanced viewing with the world premiere. One of my fabulous listeners out there actually gave it to me because my computer was acting up and would not let me enter myself into the lottery for this advanced screening. And so I was lucky enough to get to watch it. And I was actually kind of stunned. I remember when I first saw it, I couldn't believe that they were investing this much time into Ardsmere Prison in the events of basically what happened between 302 Surrender and 303 All Debts Paid. All Debts Paid being one of my favorite episodes of Outlander, period. It probably makes my top five. But there was still a lot to be desired. There was a lot that we didn't understand about that period in Jamie's life. And especially going into season six, that information was really critical to the relationships that already exist by necessity in this season. To get that preview, to get that background information was really nice. And there are actually a couple of different points in this episode where Matt Roberts drew from previous books. So season six is advertised as being based on the sixth novel of the Outlander series by Diana Gabaldon, A Breath of Snow and Ashes. But what I love so much is that these writers, if they find something in a book that they absolutely love, but they don't know how on earth they're going to make it work with whatever episode they're writing in whatever season, they just leave the tab in their book and they just let it cool and come back to it in a later season. And we saw that A in the voiceover for the final scene of this episode. That is the Drums of Autumn prologue, which was a beautiful piece of writing, and I was so happy to get that in this episode. And then you also have the cold open, the full 20 minutes, the beginning of this episode, that's all the Ardsmere stuff. And so why this 20 minutes was so critical to not only our understanding of the season in general and how the dynamic between Tom and Jamie is portrayed. It's also critical to our understanding of how Jamie got from where he was at the end of Surrender, which was barely a space above catatonic. Like he just didn't have any social skills at all. And he came out of his stupor a bit when Fergus got his hand chopped off And he realized, oh my God, I can't keep hiding in a cave when those that I love are being hurt for me. They're taking it on the chin to protect me and I can't allow that anymore. So he sacrificed himself to the British. This episode picks up basically within the span of a month or two from where that episode left off. But before the events of All Debts Paid 303, when Lord John comes onto the scene. When Jamie first gets to Ardsmuir, he is not at all in a position to be a leader. He doesn't want that. 
And I think that's really hard for a lot of these men to wrap their heads around because they don't really know what he's been through in the past seven years since Culloden. What they know of Jamie is who he was as a Jacobite officer. They know him as Red Jamie. They know him as McDew. That's who they respect. And deep down, that's who Jamie is on a level. I think he probably knows that, but he's not willing to accept that about himself because he's at a time in his life where he really just needs to focus on himself and heal because the loss of Claire devastated him. And it's something that I don't think he ever really thought he was going to get past until the events of Ardsmere. And when Jamie arrives at Ardsmere, there's already a very deep divide between the prisoners because the majority of Jacobites, not all of them, but the majority of Jacobites were Catholic. And there was a very deep line in the sand between Protestant prisoners and Catholic prisoners. Tom Christie was king of the hill. He is the leader of the Protestants and basically the instigator of all of this infighting. When Jamie comes on the scene, the Catholics are thinking, oh, God, finally, we've got a voice again. And Jamie's not having any of that. He's like, I want to stay out of it. I just want to keep my head down and do my time and move on. So Jamie's journey throughout this 20 minutes is actually us seeing the evolution of him coming back to himself. And I think that all starts with the character of James McCready, a fantastic character. And I don't normally form an emotional attachment to characters that are only in, you know, 15, 20 minutes of an entire series. But man, that scene between him and Jamie, where they're talking about the their mutual losses of the women that they love, it was so, so touching. I actually teared up when I was watching it. It was one of the few moments in this premiere that I was like, wow, that is a beautiful scene. Matt Roberts said that it was actually one of his favorite scenes of the episode as well. And it was one that when he wrote it, he had a pretty good idea of what it would look like. But when the actors got a hold of it and when the director got a hold of it, it just became this beautiful piece that there was no way they couldn't include it in the show because it was just that vital to our understanding of the episode. And I really do agree with that statement because when Jamie sees and starts to form this camaraderie with this young man and he starts to kind of reach out tentatively and help somebody for the first time in a really personal way, not in this grand gesture, I'm going to sacrifice myself to the British for you kind of way. It's more of a, I'm going to show you my pain in the hopes that it will help you through your pain type of help. And I think that's something that Jamie very hesitantly shows because he's kept his pain so bottled up inside of him that it's almost painful for him to reveal it to others. Like it seeps through every pore in his body, but it's not something that he talks about and puts out there to other people. Talking about it with James McCready lets him feel this bond with this young man. And then for literally in the next scene, for a fight to break out between the Protestants and Catholics that results in the death of this young man, it wakes Jamie up. Like Jamie was perfectly content to just 
let it ride and stay the hell out of it. Like he purposefully stands far away from the fight because he doesn't want anything to do with it. But when James McCready gets smashed in the back of the head with a rock and dies, Jamie runs into the middle of the fray and he says, stop, enough, stop it. Here's Tom Christie, who really sees himself as the de facto leader of the prisoners. Like that's how he likes to view himself. Tom's been trying to break this fight up for a solid amount of time. And Jamie has been so under the radar here lately since he's come to the prison that when he speaks up and yells for everybody to stop, people listen. And Tom does not like that at all. I think it was Mark Lewis Jones that said that Jamie has a natural authority and men automatically look up to him and... Tom doesn't like that. Like he recognizes that quality and he realizes that he doesn't have that. And so it automatically makes him really jealous, almost bitter. There's an aspect of Tom that wonders why Jamie has it so good in life when Tom has such a deep religious core and that he always puts God first, so why isn't God throwing some blessings his way? You can see Tom constantly having this battle with himself. Jamie feels an extreme amount of guilt over James's death because he feels that if he had stepped up sooner and become that leader that Hayes and Leslie and the Lindsay brothers and Ronnie Sinclair wanted him to be sooner, then maybe he could have prevented this infighting that resulted in James's death. Another sticking point for Jamie has always been the fact that he believes in defending others. That's who Jamie is at his core. Amongst the prisoners, we see these key individuals, James McCready being one who literally physically can't defend himself because he's blind. And you've got old Charlie who... After the terrible events that he suffered at Culloden and due to cumulative malnutrition over the years and stuff, he's just not mentally there anymore. And that's something that all the prisoners know, that he's not mentally well and he doesn't have the faculties around him to understand the rules, to understand where he is and why things are the way they are. He doesn't understand that they're not allowed to have tartan anymore, that they're not supposed to be Jacobites anymore, that the cause for Scotland's liberty from England is completely lost, like he's just out in left field somewhere. So when Charlie puts the tartan on James McCready's body, it's a wee bit of tartan for your journey onward. And it was a very sweet gesture, but it's something that he would have been punished for. And because of his elderly condition, he could have very well died from being flogged like Jamie was. Not only that, but he doesn't understand what he did wrong. When the soldiers approach and they're yelling at everybody and calling them riotous scum and where did this tartan come from, Tom Christie is automatically pointing a finger at old Charlie because he has this extremely black and white view of the world. And he doesn't understand the gray area that Jamie Fraser literally lives in. His entire life is in one ginormous gray area. Punishing Charlie for having tartan, 
He doesn't understand why he's not supposed to have it. And so Jamie automatically steps up. Jamie is that person and always has been that person that defends the people that can't defend themselves. He's proud of that. I'm proud of that as a viewer. Like, I love seeing him in his element like that, like constantly putting himself on the line for his men. And this is where we start to see this emerge. Like, they've always kind of viewed him as their leader because he is such a natural leader and he is self-sacrificing and he does want to do things that are in their best interest. These are all qualities that Tom Christie doesn't have. He doesn't understand the process behind it. He doesn't understand why people gravitate toward Jamie. But it's for the simple fact that he's an actual leader, whereas Tom just wants the power. And if he thinks that he can lord over them and threaten them with hell and make them more afraid then that power will be enough to hold sway over men versus someone who's kind and fair and just. It's this great juxtaposition between these men. It's a real struggle of power that we see play out really over the course of season six, but it was so important to get that groundwork laid out in the season six premiere because otherwise you just really, really weren't going to understand the tension between these two characters, I feel like. And yeah, you could have split up the flashbacks into when they would have been relevant to the story, but I don't think it would have been as impactful as this action-packed full 20 minutes at the beginning of season six. To get it all out of the way right there and to just really immerse us back in Scotland was, I think, the perfect way to do it, even if it was a little bit jarring at first. The next little bit we get is Jamie's flogging scene. And when he's put down on his knees in front of all the prisoners without a shirt and they can all see the scars that he already got at the hands of Blackjack, Tom's immediately making a snap judgment because he doesn't know and he never will know why Jamie has those scars. But the stereotype of the day is that floggings were for very dishonorable crimes And so Tom immediately makes a snap judgment that this man can't be trusted. He doesn't know what honor is. And then to add that to this conflicting, deep inside belief that Jamie doesn't know what justice is because this is what he considers fair when he didn't do what he's being accused of. Somebody else did and they're getting off scot-free because Jamie's taking the punishment. And Tom doesn't understand why Jamie would do something like that. It's very confusing to him. At the end of the flogging, when they pull Jamie up off the ground and Tom whispers to Jamie as he walks away, this wasn't justice. And Jamie looks at him and says, was it not? What I love about that line, and you can interpret so many things on it, but what I really believe Jamie is saying in that moment was, Jamie holds himself accountable for what happened to James McCready because he refused to act when he should have acted. It's not about what Charlie did. It's about the fact that none of it would have had to happen if Jamie would have put himself in an authoritative role like he was urged to do in the first place. But he was so deep in his own grief and so moiled in self pity, I guess, is how he's looking at it. I don't view it that way, but that's kind of where he's going with this. If he hadn't been so deep in his own self-pity, he would have woken up and seen that he needed to do this and he could have prevented this. And so for him, it was justice. From that moment on, we see a shift. 
Jamie has become the leader of the Ardsmuir men. And Tom doesn't like it. And he can slowly but surely feel what little control he had left slipping. And that all starts when the Redcoat comes to the cell and says, come on, time to get up and go to work. And nobody moves except for Tom. Everybody just kind of just stares at him. And Jamie stands up and he says, James McCready has died. No one will be working today. One thing that really stood out to me about this scene, well, first off, he's officially been appointed the spokesman for all these prisoners. Second off, he does that shrugging motion that we see him so famously do. And that's where that shrugging motion comes from. Not in this particular flogging, but back when he received all of his lashings when he was younger and his shirt would stick to the wounds. And so he would shrug his shoulders to kind of unstick his shirt, as gross as that may sound. That's where that motion comes from. So then to see him actually doing it for the same reason, because it's uncomfortable, like his shirt feels too tight. And that's how it's described in the books as well by Diana. That's where this comes from. So I thought that it was interesting that uh, Sam would put that in here so that we kind of see the illustration of where that motion comes from in times of discomfort for Jamie later on. Even though he doesn't have any physical pain from those floggings anymore, he still does that motion out of habit whenever he feels uncomfortable. We move on to Jamie negotiating with Harry Quarry. And Quarry is furious that Jamie would defy his orders But when Jamie explains to him what happened and why he did the things that he did, I think Quarry feels himself soften a little bit because he had pictured Jamie as this barbarian, this rebel, this lowly Jacobite that's uneducated. He's not good for anything but being a soldier. And these were all the stereotypical things that Quarry had in his head about Jamie Fraser. And now all of a sudden... Jamie has opened up his eyes a little bit and Corey realizes that there's actually a valid reason that these men consider Jamie their leader because he cares about them and he wants what's best for them. And Jamie tells Corey, he says, a life was lost. The men here are divided. All of Scotland's been torn apart by this rebellion. Some here follow Christie because he told them if they changed their beliefs, they wouldn't feel afraid. But the fear is still there. They need food and medicine, and they also need some peace. And what he's saying is the way things are being done right now and the way that Christy is doing things, that's not giving them peace. It's feeding the fear. It's feeding this infighting that they have. And so Jamie hatches this plan to become a Freemason and to make all the other men in Ardsmere Prison Freemasons as well. So they are a Masonic Lodge. And one of the cornerstones of Masonic Lodges is that you don't discuss politics and you don't discuss religion. Well, in a prison where half of your men are Catholic and half of them are Protestant and half of them are loyalists and half of them are rebels, if you take away politics and you take away religion, what else do they have? They have their commonality that they're men and they're prisoners and they have families and they had lives and they can actually form camaraderie and they can be themselves without all of their differences on the table. So even though Catholics technically were forbidden from being Freemasons at this time, I don't know if they still are or not, but definitely at this time, the Pope had placed an embargo on Catholics being Freemasons because it was almost viewed as sacrilege. When Harry asks 
have you no regard for your Pope? And Jamie says, well, the Pope isn't here in Ardsmuir with me and my men. It's very much a, we're going to do what we have to do. And who's the Pope anyway, really? (laughs) Which I find hilarious. But I thought it was an ingenious solution to a very complex problem on Jamie's part. And having such a straightforward solution really draws them in and and kind of solidifies Jamie's position within their ranks and kicks Tom out because on the heels of this announcement and everyone basically, aside from a couple of men and Tom, proclaiming their loyalty to Jamie and like this idea that he has to kind of just let it go. Right when all of that's happening, one of the Redcoats comes to Jamie and says, the governor will have luncheon with you now. He's going to go and have lunch with Quarry and discuss everything that needs to be discussed regarding the prisoner's welfare and all of that. Taking Tom's place, which grinds Tom's gears, but there's nothing he can do about it. And so his last vestiges of the power that he was holding are slipping away. To pick up with all of that background information 20 years later, that's why this was so important to understand All of that tension and all of that resentment is still there between Tom and Jamie. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the subtext to all of these scenes between Tom and Jamie. So when Tom comes to the ridge, he's got the Fisher folk with him, which is a bit of a departure from the books. I don't think it impacted things too much. And in fact, I think it streamlined things in a pretty clean way. It also made the idea of the Fisher Folk being so up in arms at the end of this season really, really distasteful, in my opinion. I'll talk about that more when we get to the season six finale. But um, yeah, I'm not a fan of the Fisher Folk for the most part. I think they're a bunch of jerkwads, honestly. But again, we have a situation where Tom is the de facto leader of this group of people. And they come to Fraser's Ridge, and all of a sudden, Jamie is their leader. Now, it's not quite like Ardsmere in that there is no prison involved, and Jamie doesn't have the same sway over the Fisher folk that Tom does because Jamie is Catholic. The Protestants are very, very suspicious of Catholics. They find them full of popish nonsense and practices they don't understand. And why on earth do they have a pope? It's very otherworldly to them almost. And they almost view Catholic practices as like witchy woo-woo almost. And so there's this immediate distrust forming. But honestly, they had nowhere to go. And Tom had the invite quote-unquote, invite from Jamie, inviting all the Ardsmere men to come and settle on the ridge. That was Jamie taking care of them. That's why he sent that invite out, which is, again, something that you don't really understand until you get this information and all this background story that you got in this episode. So it kind of gives that more of a punch when Jamie says to Fergus in season four, all my Ardsmere men should be hereabouts, so make sure you find them. That's why, because he feels this sense of loyalty towards them, like he should be looking out for them, and that this was the best way to do it. So Tom got hold of one of these flyers, and he brings with him a whole slew of settlers for Jamie, and it ends up causing more problems than it's worth. At the end of this episode, after everything that happens with Alan, Jamie approaches Tom, and he says, at Ardsmere, We got by, but that was then and this is now 
And my word on Fraser's Ridge is law, meaning there is no discussion. There is no negotiation. If you don't like it, get the hell out. To which Tom replies, well, God's word is law, is it not? Which just irritates me. I end up liking Tom in the end, and I'm sure a lot of you will too if they do it correctly in the show. Book readers like Tom, but the way that they portray Tom, I mean, he is pretty cagey in the books, I guess, as well, but man, Mark Lewis Jones does such a good job of making him an unlikable, nose in the air, on the moral high ground, frustrating individual. It's hard to watch because, you know, we all love Jamie so much. Most of us do. I know not everybody does, but 99% of viewers love Jamie and they love how Jamie handles things. And then Sam Hewen was saying how Tom Christie presents a different kind of adversary for Jamie in that most of the quote unquote villains we get in the show are physical adversaries. You've got the Blackjack Randalls of the world and the Stephen Bonnets. But Tom Christie is very much an intellectual adversary. There's a butting of heads and a war of the minds. But at the end of the day, I think they honestly respect each other. It's more about them learning to work with each other and understand that there probably isn't a right or a wrong. It's coming to a middle ground on a lot of issues. Tom and Jamie, I think they have a long way to go from where we see them in 601. But I think by the end of the season, they've come to an understanding with each other. And like I said, they do really respect each other. What happens with Alan at the end of this episode, it doesn't help things. Tom has so many frustrating thoughts about Jamie and why he has so many opportunities and why he's getting by in the world when Tom is living his life to the T as this perfect Christian example. He has a lot of questions about Jamie. He doesn't view Jamie as on the moral high ground. So he's very quick to point out what Jamie is doing wrong or what he thinks Jamie is doing wrong. And he's very quick to point out that I'm on this side of things. Even if Jamie's over there, I'm over here. That's what happens with the Browns. Tom immediately says, Alan, apologize to the Browns. Tell everybody you didn't do this, you know, and it doesn't end up going the way that he thinks it's going to. But then he says, well, my son did this and he's going to be punished because that's what's fair and that's what's just. And when Jamie tries to step in and intervene, Tom immediately objects and he's like, no, we're doing this by the book. My son will not be let off because he knows Jamie Fraser. That's not what Jamie wants. And that's what he tries to convey to Tom. It's like, we will see to your son's punishment together, Mr. Christie. What Jamie's really trying to do is keep them from getting into a pickle with the Browns when he knows what kind of pieces of work they are. He's trying to keep his settlers out of the Browns business. And I think Tom comes to understand that by the end of the confrontation scene that there's a heck of a lot more to this than just punishing my son because he stole a powder horn. This is some bad shit. And I think we see that when Tom is watching the back and forth between Richard Brown and Jamie. Sam described basically the plot of this season in a way that I hadn't really thought of it before. It's this triangle of conflict where you've got the Frasers, the Christies, and the Browns. And it really is. It's this ginormous plot triangle. And I thought that was a cool way of describing it. But by the time we see Jamie step in, I think Alan is a little bit relieved that Jamie stepped in, but also knows that he's still in for it. 
the fact that it was at Jamie's hand that he was basically humiliated in front of everyone, he holds on to that, even if it is on a subconscious level. Tom's children are very interesting. The Christie family in general is very interesting, but Tom's children were raised by other people while he was in prison. And a bunch of stuff happened in that time frame that hasn't been covered by the show yet. So I will not touch on that here. But suffice it to say that things are very complicated with the Christie family. And Alan likes to put on a show and likes to appear like he's the perfect son. He's very much like his father in that way. It's all about saving face. It's all about who you appear to be to the world. But deep down, Alan has a bit of a rebellious streak. He doesn't like being smothered by his father's stout religion and black and white view of the world. He feels like he's being suffocated by his father in a lot of ways. Malva also kind of feels that smothering influence. But I think that, at least in the beginning of this show, she's a bit more innocent. I think that gets beaten out of her and that the Malva that we see towards the end of this season is a young woman that has been through a lot. I'm not going to stand here and say that she's the best person ever because I definitely think that she has a malevolent streak in her. But the Malva that we see at the beginning of this season is eager. She views their settlement on Fraser's Ridge as an opportunity, whereas her father and brother kind of view it as a last ditch effort or a prison sentence. Malva is really hopeful, I think, and kind of this ray of sunshine, at least in the first couple of episodes. It's very interesting. And I think Jessica Reynolds and Alexander Vlahas do a great job portraying these two characters. The Christie's were fantastic casting choices, in my opinion. And Mark Lewis Jones and Alexander Vlahas were actually sought after. This was kind of one of the first times in Outlander history where a part wasn't really auditioned for, for either Alan Christie or Tom Christie. Meryl Davis and Tony Graffia had seen Mark Lewis Jones on The Crown, and they thought he was fantastic, and they told Matt about him. And from there, they got Suzanne involved, who is their casting director. And luckily, he was free, and he was willing to do it. Similar can be said of Alexander Vlahas. They saw him on Versailles and thought he was fantastic in his role on there and thought he would be perfect for Alan Christie. Really cool how a pandemic actually kind of helped us to get these cast members that we have, these awesome cast members for season six. So now that we're on the ridge, Tom and Jamie still have lots of crap to work out, right? The welcome to the ridge thing with Roger. I mean, God love him. I really do. I love Roger. And I think Rick Rankin does a phenomenal job portraying Roger. But I just feel like at least in the show, they they make him look stupid sometimes. And of course, when you look at the fact that Jamie's probably never voiced anything about Tom Christie, there was no way for Roger to know that Tom Christie and Jamie Fraser were old enemies or longtime adversaries, however you want to say it. There was no way for Roger to know that. And look at all the Ardsmuir men that Jamie has welcomed with open arms over the years. 
Roger just thought that he was another Ardsmere man. And Jamie said, all Ardsmere men are welcome. And it's like Jamie tells Claire, what was I supposed to say? I couldn't very well invite all Ardsmere men but one. Roger's hands were kind of tied. And there's been an argument made that, well... Roger should have waited until Jamie got back because he was just off visiting Marsily with Claire and he wasn't going to be long. And I can see that argument. It's valid. But at the same time, in the books, Roger didn't consult Jamie about it. This all happened in the Fiery Cross and Jamie was upstairs recovering from his snake bite. But I mean, he could have just as easily gone up and talked to Jamie about it then as well. So I don't have a problem with how they did it in the show. Honestly, Roger's decision to welcome Tom was worth it just for the look on Jamie's face when Roger reveals to him over all of this subtext. Jamie, Claire, Bree, and Roger are all kind of side-eyeing each other awkwardly like they can sense this tension between Jamie and Tom. Roger knows he fucked up, right? And <laughs> Jamie's given him this look like, you did what now? Like, without talking to me first? Do you know who this guy is? Claire and Brie are picking up on it as well. I'm not really sure where Tom stands on it. Like, yeah, I think he's glad that he got a place on Fraser's Ridge, but that's got to be hella awkward. What's important to realize in the grand scheme of Tom and the Fisherfolk coming to the Ridge, they don't have any competency with the mountains of North Carolina. They're Fisherfolk from the coast of Scotland They don't know how to build cabins. They don't know how to farm the land. They don't know how to do any of this. And this is in a world where if you couldn't feed your family and put a roof over your head, you were a dead man walking. And so these people are already on the back foot because they're settling in a place where they they can't get by without a lot of help from their friends. Which is another reason why the later events of this season are so frustrating because Jamie and Claire opened their home to these people, gave them everything that they could possibly give them, a lot of mend and make do, as Claire says. For people to treat people that bent over backwards to help you in the way that they do later in this season really just frustrates me to no end. There's a scene when Roger and Bree and Jamie are approaching to help them with their cabins and everything, where Tom is giving a blessing and he says, we're going to show them what good, pious, God-fearing people can do. And Jamie's just like, okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe we should explain how we do things here because y'all don't know anything, basically. (laughs) It's all good and well that you're God-fearing people. More power to you. And yeah. Sure, build a church, but seriously, are you going to build cabins because you can't survive the North Carolina winter in shanties? It's just not happening. I also think that Jamie takes pleasure in making Tom uncomfortable. (laughs) And I think the same can be said for Tom, and that's why he makes the jab at Jamie later on when he says something about, well, you've come a long way since Ardsmere. Right in front of Major McDonald, I was like, oh my god, that is so rude. (laughs) Like, so rude. And I mean, it's not any nicer whenever he throws that jab about, well, at least the scar in my hand will be an honorable scar, a McDo, and walks out. But I love that Jamie goes, my God, he's a stiff-necked bastard. (laughs) And Claire immediately gets her hackles up and she's like, what the hell does that mean? Yes, they are honorable scars. I love that she immediately jumps to Jamie's defense. Let's talk about a couple of other things that are important to the plot of this first episode. I think the other 
massive storyline that we get is Claire's recovery from her assault and the discovery of Ether, which are actually quite entangled. It's not something that book readers were anticipating. And I remember when I first saw this episode, because I couldn't rewatch it, right? Because I was watching the advanced screening and it was a live stream. Once it was over, it was over. I remember watching Claire put that Ferguson mask on her face. And I was like, what is this? I was so shocked. I mean, I wasn't mad about it. Like a lot of people were pissed about it. It was a very controversial choice that I feel like, unfortunately, the showrunners were having to defend themselves on. And I know they don't like to have to defend their choices. At the end of the day, they do what's best for the show. I fully believe that. They're serving the show's best interest. That doesn't always align with the books. And Matt Roberts made a fantastic analogy in the official podcast for this episode where he was talking about the analogy of painters versus photographers. And he says, painters decide what to put in a painting. Photographers decide what to leave out. And I think that the same can be said of authors versus showrunners whenever you're adapting something. Authors can put the world in their books. They can make it a thousand pages long if they want because they have time to develop all of that and they can make it integral and everything. But when you are creating a television show based on a book, you have to make choices and you have to leave things out and you have to still leave some surprises in there so that it's not always obvious what's coming around the corner. I actually, by the end of the season, really loved this choice. It was something that I did struggle with a little bit just because it was so out of left field for me. But by the end of the season, I could see what they did with it. And I was like, okay, I'm okay with this because I really do think that it upped the stakes and it made it a better story. Ultimately, what the ether really said in this episode was that despite what Claire is saying and the face that she is putting out to the world, she's not okay. And I think that that is what the ether accomplished in this particular episode. There were two scenes with Jamie, bookend scenes, that were pretty great, honestly, because it really gave us an idea of where Jamie and Claire are in their relationship after the events of season five. The first scene that I'm talking about is the one where they're in the wagon on their way to see Marsley at the beginning of this episode, kind of after the opening credits. Claire says, I really am okay, you know. And are you going to attend every home visit with me from now until kingdom come? And he says, long after that, everything seems wonderful and normal. We see a whole episode of basically seeming okay, right? And then this final scene with Jamie and Claire, where they're in the bedroom, Claire has a nightmare. She comes out of that nightmare, shaking and sweating, breathing heavily. And Jamie is like, are you okay? And it really, really reminded me vividly of season two. I think it's the second episode. It's been a while since I've seen season two, where Jamie jumps out of that nightmare with stabbing Blackjack Randall to death. And then Blackjack Randall like revives. Jamie wakes up and Claire's like, are you okay? And he's like, I won't be getting any more sleep tonight. And he walks out of the room. That's exactly what that reminded me of. It was a perfect echo 
in the episode echoes. It's interesting because they made a very unique choice to follow Katrina as she got up out of the bed. And it's showing her from Jamie's perspective. And she reaches up and grabs a piece of kindling, lights the taper in the fire, lights herself a candle, and she catches her reflection in the mirror. And she stares at her reflection for a minute. And then she walks out of frame and you see Jamie staring after her for a minute. And then he lays back down. It's a scene that says a lot without saying it. Because in that moment, you see Jamie watching Claire. He's keeping an eye on her. He knows what she's going through. But he also has complete faith in the fact that they have a very honest relationship with each other. And if Claire needs him, she will say so. He trusts her to come to him if she needs him. And that, I think, is the underlying issue for most of this season. What amounts to most of this season, unfortunately, is that she doesn't trust herself. She doesn't want to burden him and her family with what she's going through. And so she self-medicates And she tries to shove it down so far that it can't resurface. But what's happening is she's shoving it down so hard, it's just forcing it to come back up even harder. It's a loaded moment. And for the life of me, I so wished that Jamie would have not laid down, that he would have got up and followed her. And there's another moment in the season where I had that feeling as well. But I understand why he did it. Let's leave it at that. I understand why he did it. The nightmare in and of itself, Claire has a couple of these nightmares throughout the course of the season. They're pretty cool. And I actually really paid attention this time and tried to pick out everybody's voice that I heard in this nightmare. The first image that we get is Claire reaching out and touching the stones. And then in pretty quick succession, we get Lionel, Father Bane, Blackjack Randall, someone else that I couldn't put my finger on who it was. Then we get Galus, Stephen Bonnet, and Dougal in this first nightmare. I know we get different people in in the second one later on in this season. The images fade in and out and the voices fade in and out, but it's all very traumatic events that have happened to Claire that she's been able to compartmentalize up until this point in her life. And now I think her assault last season just crushed the floodgates Like there is no more barrier and that's what she's struggling so much with that she can't close it out and she doesn't know how to fix it because that's the only way she's ever been able to fix it before. So it's very interesting that we've reached this point with Claire. It's kind of her breaking point is how Katrina Balfe described it. It's cool to follow her throughout this season and really get a feel for where she's at because she has a pretty crazy arc throughout season six. If you are avid watchers of the show and if you kind of follow all of the press surrounding the show before and after each episode, you'll know that one of the things that changed with season six was they added a position called an intimacy coordinator, which is someone that basically is a 
advocate for the actors to make sure that they feel comfortable in any sort of intimate scene. They work closely with the actors, the directors, and the showrunners to make sure that not too much is being shown, that the actors feel comfortable with what they're doing, and that there aren't more people around than are absolutely necessary. Sam's responsible for bringing this position on to the Outlander set. And one thing that he said, which I thought was interesting, was that an intimacy coordinator helps them to get more out of the scene, actually, because you're making sure that every single sex scene has a purpose and that it's telling a story. One thing that I really noticed when I was watching this love scene between Jamie and Claire was what each motion was saying. Because Katrina Balfe was pregnant throughout the filming of this season, you'll notice that a lot of the filming style is very close up. Lots of faces and close-ups of body parts and stuff like that. And that's something that's across the board the whole season so that in the episodes where she filmed that she was really big, and we're talking like six, seven months pregnant. This woman filmed six or seven months pregnant, which is beyond mind-blowing for me. But anyway, there's this continuity in how the season is shot, and it's different from how previous seasons have been shot. So visually that caught my eye, but because everything is so close up and because the intimacy coordinator put special emphasis on making sure that each of these scenes was telling a story, in this particular love scene, we really see these tender touches that Jamie and Claire do. This is the first intimate scene that we have seen since Claire's assault. We got the the glimpse in the season finale where they were laying in bed kind of entangled naked at the end of last season, but obviously because of the nature of the story that was being told, they didn't show any sort of intimacy. And I agreed with that choice. However, in this season opener, we do get that kind of scene. And I found it was really beautiful, the type of language that they're speaking with how they touch each other. Claire runs her fingers through Jamie's hair and kind of sweeps his hair back off of his face and just gives him this almost like sad, tender little smile. And he runs his fingers really delicately along her collarbone and up her shoulder and back down, just really being tender with each other and showing each other how much they love each other just in how they touch each other is so beautiful. So I did want to take a moment to talk about that. We don't see much of Roger and Brie in this episode. I actually really liked it. They are a very happy couple for this episode and for most of the season. And I attended Outlandish Vancouver in January before season six aired And Rick Rankin and Sophie Skelton were both there. And they actually said that they enjoyed season six and like kind of having a breather from all of the drama because they felt like Roger and Brie were at a really good place in this season and that they were actually the people that other characters leaned on and came to it for advice because they were so solid with each other. So I really do feel like you see that, especially in the way that Roger and Brie communicate 
and they handle the Amy McCallum thing because you can tell they both really feel awful about what happened to Amy's husband and that she's basically all alone. And so they come to this conclusion together that they need to help her. And Bree's like, well, I'll go through all of Jemmy's old clothes and see if I can find anything that will fit either of her boys. And Roger's like, yeah, and I'll see if I can come up with something else. And what he ends up coming up with is helping to build Amy and the boys a cabin somewhere for them to stay because they don't have a man in their life to do this construction like most other families do that have recently come to the ridge. It's very good that Roger and Bree are solid enough in their relationship that they feel like they can kind of share that support with other people, which I actually really liked. Fergus and Marsley are a hot mess express. Again, when I attended Outlandish Vancouver, Cesar Donboy and Lauren Lyle were both there. And I actually did a a meet and greet with them and, and got to ask them a couple of questions. And they were very proud of their work in season six. Rightfully so. They did an amazing job. And I will definitely talk about it more in the next two podcasts that I do because I feel like most of their material is in 602 and 603. But we really start to see that start to fester. In this episode, 601, you can see there's tension under the surface. Marsley is kind of at her wit's end. She's got three little kids running around and she's massively pregnant with a fourth baby. And she's having to do all the housework. And then when Claire goes to visit her, Claire sees bruises on her arms. Fergus is a mess. We don't really know what's going on with that. But we get little teases of all this crap that's kind of coming to a head. Fergus and Marsley are normally this very connected and happy-go-lucky, youthful and very much in love couple, that really gets turned on its head this season, at least for a little bit. And we really see them struggle. And I think for Marsley especially, this isn't what she wanted. And that's what Lauren Lyle said in an interview that she did before the season came out. Marsley is really struggling with her life because it's not something she ever pictured for herself. She married for love and she had this very romantic notion of how things would go and that her and her husband would live happily ever after. And after the events of season five's finale, it's left a lot of physical and emotional scars on everybody involved. It's impacted a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. So I think we're we're going to see that play out over the course of the next couple of episodes. So that all starts here. I do have a couple of things that I noticed about this episode, and I'm not quite calling them complaints because I really did like this episode, but I did notice a couple of time discrepancies. And it was one of those things where I had no idea at what time of the year I was in and how much time had passed since the end of season five. And it was very disorienting for me. When we open up with where Fraser's Ridge is after the opening credits, it looks like at least six months has gone by. I mean, you've got a bunch of things that are established architecturally on the ridge that weren't there. You've got a well, you've got all kinds of pastures, you've got these beautiful stables, and you've got a corn crib. All of that has popped up since the season five finale. None of that had even started to be built. So I was thinking at least six months, right? I feel like that's generous. I don't think that a lot of things could have been built that quickly. But with how pregnant Marsley was at the end of season five, to know that she is still pregnant in this episode, I'm thinking it was maybe three months. 
So I don't know whether they were being overly ambitious with the amount of development that they did on the ridge. I mean, Matt Roberts said that the reason that they built the stable was to kind of have a variety of outdoor cover for like weather and stuff. They could easily move a scene from the pasture to the stable. It also kind of shook things up, right? It showed that the ridge was growing. So I was okay with it, but it just, all of the changes that happened right at the beginning of season six really kind of threw me for a loop. And the other thing that kind of supported my idea that about six months had gone by was Jamie's relationship with Major McDonald. Major McDonald in the books was somebody that came in, I think, in the Fiery Cross is when his character first really started to become established. So by the events of what happens in season six, he and Jamie actually did really have a good rapport and they knew each other. And some of these conversations that he has with Jamie, like the one with the Indian agent, where he's like, so I'm supposed to go back to the governor and say that Colonel James Fraser of Rowan County Militia refused to become Indian agent for the crown and foster relation, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Jamie's correcting him, you know, not refused, politely declined. And they have this rapport and then you see it again with kind of the familiar way that they talk before the quote unquote hog roast when Jamie's saying that his whiskey still had been destroyed. McDonald says, well, you know, Brown says the Native Americans. And he said, no, the Browns blew up my still. And Major McDonald goes, don't do this to me. I feel like only people that know each other really well can have those kinds of conversations. And if you've only known somebody for three months, only having seen them maybe for three or four days while they're passing through, liberally once a month, you don't have that kind of rapport with them. So that was kind of off for me as well. But all of that being said, I really did think that it was a very good episode. I was happy with the changes that they made. Nothing really rubbed me the wrong way. I will say these episodes do get better with a rewatch. So if you have only seen them once, I know it's really close to when it's aired and we are just really getting into the heft of Droughtlander. But honestly, if you haven't rewatched them, please take a moment to do so because they really do get better with a rewatch. I think that having this cleansing purge watch helps immensely. I feel like this season overall, with the constraints that they were working with, because there were a lot of constraints, they did a good job with adapting this book. Before I close out my thoughts, I wanted to go over my performance of the episode, which was Sam Hewen. I felt like there were several moments where the facial acting that he does is just phenomenal. The one scene in particular that I was really thinking about was where he finds out that Roger extended the invite for the Christie's and the Fisher folk to stay at the Ridge. And he just gives this look to Roger like, you did what now? (laughs) But it's without saying a word. And a lot of this episode for me was carried on Sam's shoulders. So he did a fantastic job. And Mark Lewis Jones is great too. He's a joy to watch, honestly, as Tom Christie. So yeah, he gets my honorable mention. Quote of the episode is actually from the scene between Jamie and James McCreary in the prison where James asks, has what we've been through all been for nothing? That scene was so touching to me because 
it was really this connecting point between two heartbroken souls that are struggling to find their purpose in the world without the women that they love. When Jamie says, what we have known, some never will. It isn't just nor fair, but it's eternal and it's ours. So it's not fair that they're experiencing this heartbreak. How could anything that cruel be considered just? Why would you give something so wonderful to somebody and then rip it away? But what he's also saying is that this love that was such a tragedy to lose is also something that most people never get to experience and will always have that with us. I thought that was a beautiful quote, and so I had to put it as my quote of the episode. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up my thoughts. And as always with these episode analysis, I opened up the floor to you guys so that you could let me know what you thought on 601 Echoes. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Jillian Tucker, she said, I love the opening quote, if time is anything akin to God, I suppose memory must be the devil. The cold open was beautiful. Yeah, I thought that the opening quote and the cold open really flowed into each other well, Jillian. She continues to say, it's interesting to see the different dynamics between Tom and Jamie's leadership styles and the manner in which they are established. Tom seeks to be the leader. Jamie just is the leader. Jamie says, why would he listen to me? Talking about Tom, to which the reply is, because you're McDoo. If anyone can put him in his place, it's you. And I really agree with that statement. I think it's Hayes that says that. And it's really true because Jamie just has such an unassumed natural authority that without even really trying, he really thwarts most of Tom's efforts because he's the default leader. Like everybody just automatically looks to him, whereas Tom tries too hard a lot of the times, I think. Jillian continues, Tom's leadership style is to attempt to force leadership of the prisoners through grand speeches and holiness, which only results in being incendiary. Jamie leads quietly and by example, resulting in people naturally wanting to trust and follow him. Watching Jamie be flogged for the tartan that wasn't his, essentially taking a punishment voluntarily, Tom sees Jamie's natural leadership and recognizes that it puts his own status as the VIP, very important prisoner, lol, at risk. He sees that status slipping away, but I think he is nevertheless awestruck by Jamie. On the first watch, Tom's that wasn't justice comment hits as righteous, and perhaps that was his intention. But on the rewatch, it hit me more as an acknowledgement of the lengths to which Jamie would go for his men, while attempting to communicate why Tom wouldn't have done the same. It's almost an attempt to place himself as an equal, and Jamie's reply of wasn't it then made it clear that they will never be equal. That's an interesting interpretation of that, Jillian. I didn't really view it honestly as one of them challenging the other. I think Tom was genuinely confused by Jamie's actions. And Jamie did it for reasons that I think Tom couldn't ever fathom. And I think Jamie understood that. The comment goes on to say, the first conversation about the ether highlights the contrast between Claire and Jamie and where they are in recovery from her attack. Her saying, that's the beauty of it. You don't feel anything. And him saying, it'd be a shame not to feel anything. For her, the thought of feeling nothing, albeit referring to physical pain in this conversation, is enticing and attractive. And I'm sure her subconscious leaks out a little here. But it's sweet to see them talk about how they both just want a peaceful, quiet life together, to which we all can say, keep dreaming. <laughs> the very first scene that we really get of present day, quote unquote, Fraser's Ridge, was super good. It's a chance for us to get to see Jamie and Claire at it in their everyday life. 
and it opens up in the most unexpected way. It's Jamie opening the door to Claire's surgery and seeing her, I think for a second, just he thinks peacefully sleeping on the bed and he kind of smiles to himself and then he like looks at her and he's like, wait a minute, something's off. And he goes over to her and he's like, Claire? And he touches her and goes, Claire. And then he shakes her and goes, Claire. (laughs) And she just, she kind of starts and she's like, Jesus H. Roosevelt, Christ, Jamie, you scared me. And he's like, I come and find you barely breathing, thinking you've gone to meet Christ himself. And I'm the one that's scaring you. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God. I love Jamie. (laughs) He's just like, oh my God, seriously? Like, I just had a heart attack and you're saying that I'm scaring you? Oh, oh boy. Melanie Wyatt says, my feelings about the opening appear to be different from others commenting. I thought it was too long. I think a 10 minute segment would have been enough rather than 20 minutes. My initial feelings for the Christie's were mixed. I liked Malva, was suspicious of Alan and thought Tom was a conflicted man. Claire's ether use seemed logical since she had tested it while making it and found that it helped her escape. Yeah, I agree. Claire's ether use was very straightforward for me. I mean, I don't think that she created it with that intention to use it for medicinal purposes on herself. But I think in the course of testing it out and seeing if it worked, she realized that it removed her from all of her problems and sent her to oblivion for a few minutes. When she wakes up in the middle of the night, sweating and trembling from this horrible nightmare that she's just had, and she wants to shut it all off, she knows that that ether has the power to shut it all off, even if it's just for a couple minutes. So I think that the lure of that was a little bit too much for her to fight in her compromised emotional state. Last comment of the night is from Laura Hillman-Turner. She said, the cold open was definitely fitting, 22 minutes and 50 seconds long, for the supersized premiere. The flashback to Ardsmere Prison did a great job of establishing the relationship of Jamie and Tom Christie, two men in the role of two very different styles of leadership. Tom leads with the belief of rule following, pointing blame, and the fear of God. He is for himself well before his followers. Jamie leads with compassion for others, sacrificing himself by taking the blame and punishment for his men, and leads by example. I'm glad they took the time to establish this relationship as it is necessary to understand Tom Christie for this episode and moving forward in the season. On first watch, I was not on board with the Ether storyline. It's a fabrication of the show writers and not from the books. However, as the season continues and after rewatching a few times, I thought it was a good way to handle Claire's trauma. The book allows the reader to be in Claire's head. The writers had to show the watcher what was in her head. And this was a good way to convey to the audience all of the trauma that Claire has compartmentalized over the years. Claire's nightmare consists of 11 flashes of trauma. Three of those flashes are of Lionel Brown. Trauma that is still fresh and raw that needs to be extinguished. The ether is a readily available short-term, very effective fix to eliminate the trauma, even if temporarily. I originally had the argument that Claire, as a medical professional, would never do such a thing. This is not true. Trauma has no rational. First impression of Alan is that he seems timid and unsure around his father, but had no problem talking over his sister when he's introduced to the Frasers. Malva seems agreeable, eager to please, smart, and ambitious. Also, Jessica Reynolds is absolutely gorgeous. She is an amazing young actress, and I think she would have also made a really good younger Jenny. 
observations. Ian coming out of the woods from hunting without Rolo at his side is weird. Roger is looking really good with his long hair and beard. Also, his normal voice, no further impairment from the hanging. Sam has some really great face acting when he walks in the kitchen to find Tom Christie in his kitchen, and Lizzie and Mrs. Bug having a battle over dish placement on the table was hilarious. I really liked what you said about the book showing what's in Claire's head but the writers having to show that on the screen. And I 100% agree with that statement. That's why the ether was so perfect because it gave us a physical manifestation of all the thoughts and fears and nightmares that Claire is living on a daily basis. And it takes it and shows us the embodiment of that. And it becomes more and more pronounced as the season goes on. And I feel like that's not something that we could have fully understood unless we got this ether storyline. I also thought that Rolo being missing from the beginning sequence was weird. And you know what else I thought was weird? There is no mention of Jemmy at all in this episode. We get all three of Fergus and Marsley's kids And we get little Aiden, which is Amy's son, but no Jemmy, not even a mention of why he's not there. I mean, I get that it was COVID going on and that they had restrictions on how many people they could have on set and they were trying to limit child exposure. I get that. But at least give us some explanation as to why Roger and Brie are constantly on screen without their child, especially at the hog roast scene. I mean, most of the time you can explain it away as, oh, he's with Lizzie because Lizzie watches all the little kids on the ridge. But at the hog roast scene, Lizzie is helping Mrs. Bug, as Laura mentioned, with all the setup for the hog roast and stuff. So again, where the heck is Jimmy? So that did bug me. I was like, um, hmm. Yeah. Alrighty, guys. Whew, this has been a long one. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode of The Sassnack Files. Make sure to join me next week for my discussion on 602 Allegiance. Hope you'll join me on August 13th at 4 p.m. for my discussion on the Celtic Brooch series, book two. That series is by Katherine Lowry Logan. It's really good if you're a book reader and you like time travel romance. I'd highly recommend it. And I'm doing special Droughtlander book club episodes. You can catch my first episode on the Ruby Brooch wherever you listen to podcasts. With all of that, I'm signing off for the week. You guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you next week. Bye. Bye.